What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll. What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbow, and welcome to another edition of Living with a Pod Complex, presented by the Meet Meep Podcast, where we go through albums that were released on Trustkill Records, but distributed through Roadrunner Records as an excuse for me to talk about even more albums that I love. And today we got a heavy hitter, both literally and metaphorically, as you'll find out later on in the episode, with 18 Visions 2002 release, Vanity. Turning 20 this year, if you're listening to it in 2022. If you're listening to it in 3022, it's 1,020. Important to remember on your abacus. But we're talking with a band frontman, James Hart, and we're going to talk about making the album with this all-star cast of Keith Barney from Throwdown on guitar, uh, Brandon Chapetti from Bleeding Through on guitar, Ken Floyd from Zed. I think <laughs> he tours around with Zed now. Um, not the uh, villain from the Power Rangers movie, but uh, well, I guess he Zed in the Power Rangers movie is more like an anti-hero, right? Because he gets displaced by avenues, but not that Zed. I'm talking about the disc jockey and uh, touring the album. You know the the different experiences they had in just being a band and changing up their sound so much. Because this album comes off of 2000s until the ink runs out, which was very much a uh, a metalcore aggressive record that was still unique in its own right and uh, a lot of people's favorite 18 visions album but vanity was a dramatic change not only for the band but for music in general and they were a big part of it so it was very exciting to get to talk to james about that as well as their recently released covers album entitled 1996 so we will get into that right now Vanity turning 20. I mean, Vanity uh, to me is like the start of what I know of 18 Visions. Like, it's kind of like the trilogy. You know, there's Vanity, Obsession, and Self Titled. And then there's everything before Vanity that's almost like a different band to me entirely. And then everything after, which is also totally separate in my mind. I don't know if you see it that way, the three the three uh, segments of the career of the band. Yeah, it's weird. I never really I never really thought about it that way, but you know, when you break it down, there's definitely like a vibe or a feel for the band itself, I think like visually, aesthetically, and 
I would say that that's fairly accurate. You know, like we, we had this thing about us in the early years and then we definitely had this thing about us in, you know, the early mid two thousands, like you just described. And, you know, 20 years later as grown ass adults in our forties, you know, we also have a completely different vibe and take on, you know, the way we look at things and, you know, being in a band. Well, even just like nostalgically, if you were to, if someone were to think of casually 18 visions, they think of kind of this, you know, they think of the the pink and they think of the the ties and, you know, the people using the term fashion core and whatever that may mean. So if we go to until the ink runs out, which comes out before vanity, you have like the the death metal splatter logo, you know, and um, the songs are very aggressive and your vocals are like an octave lower than they are from from then on. And then it, there's a dramatic turn. It's like this very uh, legible typed out font from then on. I mean, it, it kind of, you know, morphs over time through obsession and, uh, and well, self-titled, it, it certainly makes a dramatic change. But, you know, stylistically, everything about the band seems like it's kind of a starting point with Vanity. So was that a, an intentional thing where you guys think I'm like, oh, we're going to reinvent ourselves or it just naturally happened that way? Yeah, I think I think visually with like, the artwork and like the logo and the way that the band was represented on like, um, like a CD or like, I guess a CD format, you know, uh, Keith was doing the graphic design. And so everything he was doing at that time was like pretty clean. So it was more about his, his style and his, his image. And that's kind of carried its way throughout, like, you know, from vanity on to where we're at today um, you know, putting out our music is like the whole like visual aesthetic of the releases has really kind of been uh, Keith's thing. And he's just kind of run with it and taken ideas and feedback and just, you know, created something that he thinks would be, you know, awesome for what we're doing and help fit the vibe musically. Um, and then musically speaking, Vanity obviously was that point where most people recognize us to start like really kind of tinkering with our sound. And I think, um, you know, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, there's a little bit of like rock riff and like some weird, like dark melody on until the ink runs out, but it's not really, it's not really like seen through all the way. It's just kind of like, you know, splashed in here and there. Uh, I don't know what songs came first and what songs came last in terms of like what was written, but I do know on vanity, when we started writing songs, um, you know, the early, I, I feel like the, the stuff that it might be on the early middle part of the record, there's a lot of parts. There's a lot of like, you know, just five minute long songs. And then as the record kind of gets a little longer later into, in, into like the scope of it, you get like, you broke like glass and Sonic death monkey parts kind of start repeating themselves more and more songs kind of start to get a little bit shorter. I think that's when we kind of figured out we could repeat parts and have a chorus. Um, but there was really no, no thought process of let's do this this way. It was always just really, really organic and just kind of what we were hashing out in the, uh, in the rehearsal studio at the time. And I mean, for you personally too, of course, uh, a huge change for this album from until the ink runs out is you start singing a lot. You know, there's a little bit of singing on Motionless and White, which comes out, I know, just kind of right before. But, you know, I, I know just from 
being aware of your interests, you know, you were really into like Alice in Chains and bands like that. And of course your vocals have a, a tinge of that to them, but so it makes sense to me that you would want to sing because you like that music, but what was the point that made you be like, okay, I, I can do that with this band? I think just uh, the fact that the guys were writing parts, music, musical parts, guitar parts that were um, willing to allow me to do that. I can force things over crazy, chaotic, weird time metal stuff, but it just doesn't sound like pleasing to my ear. Um, so I was always just trying to go off the vibe of what I hear musically. So if, you know, if somebody's giving me a song that, you know, it's got a lot of cool rock parts in it and something that I feel like, you know, I could do, I could do this over that and it might sound pretty cool. Uh, that's when I start exploring myself. You know, the guys are always exploring on their own, writing the songs at home. Um, but me myself, I don't really get to do that until I'm giving, you know, given like, um, you know, a piece of work or piece of music. But you're still around for that creative process of them, like kind of forming the songs together. You know, for Vanity, yeah, it was uh, because everything was done in the rehearsal studio. But at the same time, you know, Keith would bring, you know, a half written song and then somebody else would be like, oh, I got a riff. And you throw the riff on top of that and then you throw the riff on top of that. And then I was, you know, I would hear the song and kind of get ideas. And I think Motionless and White helped kind of push me to be able to, to want to do that more. Um, and then when, you know, when I was just hearing the songs that were brought to the table, that's when I was really starting to explore more. And then Obsession, of course, Ken and Keith started doing their own pre-production at home. They figured out how to work Pro Tools. They were demoing songs in full rather than kind of Frankensteining shit in the, you know, in the rehearsals, you know, kind of piecing things together. And for me, I think that the tough part for writing, you know, anything pre-Obsession was that I didn't have... Uh, a recorded piece of music to work to. So it was like going back and forth into the rehearsal space once, twice, three times a week um, and really trying to hammer out the part over and over and really ingrain it in my mind. Um, I didn't have stuff to just kind of put down uh, and, and like kind of try out different things here and there. It was kind of like whatever came to me first was what I stuck with because I was really, I think, afraid to, to change things and then forget what I had done if I wanted to go back to that. Whereas now I've got like 8 million tracks on Pro Tools, GarageBand <laughs> or, you know, whatever program we're working on. I can demo things out. I can mute different tracks and see what works and what I like. And if I want to Frankenstein my own vocal patterns together, I can do that, too. Now, at this time, you know, with Vanity, the the band has so many creative forces in it at one time. I mean, I'm sure that that's still the case, but ones that I'm familiar with uh, as far as you have uh, Ken, who I know, you know, does the full song of Gorgeous on the album. So he certainly has the ability to write a song. Keith, who, you know, had done Throwdown, he was the vocalist for that band as well. And I know he has a hundred other projects and I mean, I'm a big Keith Barney fan, but I almost feel like I give Keith too much credit though. I think that anything he was a part of, he like did a hundred percent of, and I got to make sure I uh, <laughs> am realistic about it. And then Chipetti, Brandon Chipetti's in the band at the time. Of course, he uh, is a vocalist in his own right and therefore, in my mind, a songwriter. So I guess what I'm getting at, is there any point in any of these songs other than Gorgeous, which I know is Ken singing anyway, where they even bring vocal ideas for you? Like, oh, hey, I wrote this riff and also I have this pattern in my mind. For that record, not quite as much. Um, and to be honest with you, 
at that time being younger and like wanting to like be my own vocalist and write my own parts, I was probably, I think, you know, a few of us were really like kind of possessive of what we were doing at the time. Um, now I, I don't care now, you know, I, I think, I think it went to the obsession record when I started to like kind of, you know, relinquish my wants for a certain song or a certain part for whatever the best idea was, whether it was Ken's idea or Keith's idea. And then really for sure on the self-titled record in 2006, I was definitely willing to be so much more open to, um, you know, ideas and opinions. And I wasn't as hurt easily as maybe I was in, you know, the vanity writing process. If somebody didn't like something I was doing or wanted me to change something, you know, it would upset me. And fast forward four years later, and it didn't, it didn't get me as much. It didn't, it didn't bother me. Uh, I didn't mind sharing uh, ideas and option, like opinions and lyrics and vocal patterns and, you know, any of that stuff with the other band members, it was like a real collective effort. Um, and then obviously I, anything I'm doing now, sure. I write, you know, I would say 90% of everything, 18 visions when it comes to vocals and lyrics, but I'm also, Hey Keith, um, you know, it would be cool to get, you know, your take on this song. I've been doing a lot of writing vocally, over the last you know month, I've you know I've written five or six songs. I would love to see where you would approach this song. And so you know he'll throw some ideas at me. I might use some of them. I might work off of some of them. I might scrap some of them. Um, but it's definitely vocally very collaborative at this point. Okay, well that makes sense too. I mean, especially in that part of the band, that stage of the band, I should say that you'd be a little bit more sensitive, maybe or precious with, hey, this is you know I'm the vocalist. I want to. Um, versus later on, you know, just maturing as a band, making more records, going through more processes, you being a more collaborative with everything. I mean, that's that's natural, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that that was like that was pretty much it for that whole record. Ken with with Gorgeous, he he wrote that song and he wanted to sing it, and you know, I didn't have a problem with him singing it. I thought I I probably should have sang it, but you know, he put that whole thing together, and it was something he really wanted to do. And so, you know, let him go with it. And I think too, that was like the, with, with songs turning into five minute long songs is like, like I said, you have somebody like Keith or Brandon or Ken bring half a song to the table. And then somebody saying, I got a part, let's throw it on. I got another part, let's throw that on. And instead of like, just saying like, no, 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 let's save that for a different song. You know, you get, you know, five minute long song, like, uh, one hell of a prize fighter or something that's got 8 million different parts. And you're just like, Holy shit. Now this song is about six minutes and you know, you know, what's, what's going on here. Cause I, we're starting to kind of listen back to this album now. It's been 20 years and, and kind of like see and explore like what we were doing at the time and like what we would have done differently now and like what our take on it would be now. And, you know, playing some of those songs live, you know, I, I've definitely, you know, with You Broke Like Glass, not totally changed the song vocally, but I've definitely made it like easier and maybe a little bit catchier in some parts that maybe, you know, before it's just like, I just want to sing on every fucking part. 
and get as much out there as possible. And like, there's no room for the guitars to breathe. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, it's funny to go back and look at some of those songs that were written 20 plus years ago. We'll be back after a quick break. If you love good music and good podcasts, you'll love Roots Music Rambler. I'm Jason Falls. My co-host Francesca Folinazzo and I talk to the singers, songwriters, musicians, and more in Americana, alt-country, bluegrass, folk, blues, and beyond. We share our own takes on the latest news in the space and recommend new music for you to explore every episode. Come get to the roots of the music you love. Find us at RootsMusicRambler.com or go wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Roots Music Rambler. Yeah, Price Fighter almost like ends and then starts a whole new song halfway through it, which is kind of funny. Um, listening back, I mean, at the time when I first heard it, I didn't think it was funny. I was like, oh, this is sick. And now they're screaming about sellouts. But also Howard Jones is on that song, which is, uh, I know at the time he was in Blood Has Been Shed, but then of course, pretty much immediately after he becomes this huge force and Kill Switch Engage. So that's really cool to have that as part of your legacy. Um, that song and also You Broke Like Glass are some of the few mentions for a long time i mean maybe oath later on where you kind of reference straight edge it seems like and i know that 18 visions is a straight edge band but more than anything i think that's the first song where i know that you're not singing about a girl i've always been like somebody to to pull from like personal experiences um i've never really been like super inspired to write about stuff that doesn't necessarily impact me directly so everything i've written about for the most part has has been something that i've either gone through or or experienced or something that i've stumbled across i've always looked at like writing lyrics as like a really, really good outlet um, for emotions and feelings, whether it's like sadness and depression, whether it's anger and hatred or whether it's happiness. Um, You know, the, the happier stuff, I I always struggled finding a hard time writing about like positive things. You know, I I feel like that wasn't really um, where I was pulling from, you know, like I, I don't journal on a daily basis basis. So I'm not writing about all the good things that happened to me. I'm writing more about the things that are either more tragic to me or something that's things that I'm struggling with or experiences that, you know, have affected me in like a negative way or they've changed me or have been hurt. So, you know, I feel like what better way than to write about a person or a relationship that you're going through the ebbs and flows of it, the push and pull, uh, the makeup, the breakup, you know, I feel like those were always really good, uh, talking points for me as a writer. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, in general, most songs that I like and, and can draw inspiration from are about a relationship in some way, right? Either you love a significant other or you love a friend and they betrayed you, you know, and so you're talking about that. So, um, there's so many titles on it until the ink runs out that even has the word she in it. And then you go to prize fighter, which is, you know, like, I mean, you're talking about my fists made the connection. I mean, it's a hard as hell song where we're kind of downplaying how tough that track is. And then you broke like glass and then the critic, you know, you're talking about, uh, I w- would love to know if there's someone specific, but it sounds like, you know, you're talking about kind of maybe a uh, negative reviews or something you guys would have gotten at the time. Yeah. Just like negative feedback. Um, 
stuff that just kind of like dug at me, you know, personally, I know like just in general, like the band, you know, I think at, at that time you're younger and you have a hard time like hearing like negative things about yourself or, you know, people say things that aren't true and, you know, you want to, you want to reach out to that person and, and maybe like change their mind, but they're not willing to hear it. So, um, you know, putting something like that on paper for me too, is just, just a way to express like anger, one way of dealing with it, not necessarily geared or directed towards one person in particular, but, um, you know, just, just the mass that, uh, yeah, didn't really, uh, respect what we were doing. So saying negative things without understanding or knowing like who we are, you know, just like talking shit on somebody without knowing them. Right. Like, Oh, fuck that guy. He sucks for whatever reason I'm going to make up in my head. Um, you know, but really might be really awesome guy, you know? Well, kind of going off that same thing. I mean, you know, now retrospectively, I think people see, both this album and especially obsession in a different light than maybe they did when it came out. But I know that you would have had to get some sort of uh, backlash or negative reaction from people that really loved until the ink runs out. to when vanity came out. So was that difficult for you to deal with the people that were into the band before now, you know, thought differently of you? Yeah. The, the biggest jump was from until the ink to vanity for sure. You know, a little surprising at first. And yeah, I think we were a little like, taken back we weren't really expecting that we'd been a part of this like hardcore you know and metal community for you know so long um you know growing up in it and then having the band grow up in it that you know you're you're not expecting yeah you're not expecting that sort of thing you know you're just you're so, so stoked that you you know came together and made this record and put it out and you know you're pumped on the songs and the music and you think you know, your fans are going to dig it. And then like half of them shit on it. And half of them are like, Oh my God, this is incredible. And then you get all these new fans that replace the old fans. And then you start to kind of forget, you know, about, you know, the transition of, of, of your fan base. Um, you know, but we experienced that almost, I would say on every album from until the ink runs out uh, all the way up until the self-titled release, you know, bands jumping off, you know, jumping ship. And then, new fans coming on board. And, you know, I would, I would say like, looking back, we, you know, would have stayed the same band as until the ink runs out and maybe just implemented little bits and pieces of what we were doing on vanity and obsession. You know, it might've been different and the band might've grown even bigger than it did. But I think musically we probably would have like kicked ourselves in the ass and not been as happy with what we were doing. Yeah. I mean, I think that from vanity to obsession to self-titled is like a natural progression and that it like slowly kind of adds those elements in, but also on the other end, it seems like, yeah, you were maybe constantly testing the, the limits of the, that original fan base. You're like, Oh, well, we'll see if they'll keep coming with us along the ride. Now I was lucky enough that I didn't even have that preconceived notion. I didn't uh, really get into 18 visions until vanity. And I just remember, uh, especially when obsession came out, people would be like, that was like, a th like I said, it's totally different now. People's opinion of both of those records have, have aged a lot better where they, I think really appreciate them, especially obsession. I think that obsession was probably a lot more polarizing than uh, vanity was, but, um, but people used to always just point to, you know, they'd be like, I would wear an, 
an 18 vision shirt and they'd be like, well, I liked until the ink runs out. And I'm like, Oh, I don't even really know that one. You know, that wasn't even in my, my canon. So, um, for me, you know, with vanity too, like you said, you're, you got more fans and your fan base had to have gotten bigger. And I really think that this is the album that people kind of think of as a whole with 18 visions, because, you know, you broke like glass people probably forget or don't realize the big deal that it was is on like MTV and MTV too. Like you have a music video on regular rotation in the, in the mainstream zeitgeist, like everybody is seeing this, which is probably a big reason why um, you were able to, you know, become such a a well-known name and get that message spread. So with you broke like glass in particular, when you guys wrote that song, did you kind of know, I mean, like you said, it's even later in the album where it's a lot more focused. It's like, you know what, three and a half minutes. It's not a five minute epic. It's got uh, a clear verse chorus. You're singing, you know, the most uh, out of probably any of the songs other than maybe I don't mind. So at the time, did you guys know like, oh, this is going to be the one that we're going to really try to push and, and make our, our anthem. We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little you mean? Yeah, yeah, we all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying to oh, yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. try, try get them on there. Yeah. We all artists, man. We go you feel me? We gonna have this like Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right with this I got lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I don't, lie. Play, with don't play with it. No. Take that shit serious. No, had no clue. Yeah, to be honest with you, I, I always like, I always thought like, I don't mind was like the song with all the hooks.
And I just, um, but it's interesting you bring up I Don't Mind, though, because to me, that is like the vanity song. Like if I were to show somebody one song, it has every aspect that that record has. It has the singing. It has, it's still almost four and a half, five minutes, probably. I think it's a little longer. It's got the, uh, that like kind of Southern riff at the end, you know, it breaks down into that, which is really cool. And it's, it's catchy. I remember even, you know, when you guys toured this album with um, Atreyu and Kamira, I remember that that was like a, a highlight of the set. And then even when Obsession came out, you still kept I Don't Mind in the in the rotation. So I, I always felt like that was a, a big song for the record. So I, I don't uh, doubt you or I don't fault you for thinking that was like going to be the hit. That being okay. said, when you when you did tour this record with a band like Atreyu, who's not too different uh, from The Sound of Vanity, and I'm sure you guys probably were familiar with them just being from Southern California and uh, and Kamira. Did you get a good response from, you know, because that's kind of a different crowd. You know, you're talking about you grew up in this hardcore metal community, but really the Kamira Atreyu crowd of 2002 is a little bit separated from that, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it was it was cool. Uh, I think, too, God, was Vanity out? I think Vanity was out. We did this like mushroom head tour with Lamb of God and we Keith couldn't do the tour because Throwdown was supposed to be in the studio and then they end up not being in the studio. Ken moved a guitar and then we got we hired a drummer. Brandon was no longer in the band. Oh, it was just a weird, yeah, it was a weird, weird thing. Um, and that was, I think, our first experience was like, holy fuck, we're like on the wrong tour. Like, you know, you know, we don't look like Lamb of God, Mushroom Head are like in disguise costume or whatever and we're like super young our hair's colored (laughs) we we look totally different we're getting shit thrown at us every night we're getting booed off stage um you know we had some people that liked us but most people hated us it was our first big tour ever um yeah and then a few months later we find ourselves on tour with lamb of god chimera and atreyu and that was Lamb of God's um, Ashes of the Wake release tour. I think it was just coming out. But I think having a Treyu on that tour with us gave the band a better vibe when we were on stage. We had more people in the crowd that were familiar because people were coming for, you know, us and a Treyu. And Lamb of God was starting to be like breach into the hardcore scene as well a little bit more. And so our shows, our shows were better. Um, the, the response was better. The crowd participation was better. And, and with that, I feel like we were, you know, some of those Camara fans, some of those Lamb of God fans and bring them with us, whether they whether they came along for the full ride, I have no clue, but um, yeah, it was, it was a good experience for us. Um, yeah. Being on a tour like that. You know, I, I witnessed once this happened, but on a tour like Mushroom Head and Lamb of God, that people would be like antagonistic towards you, like, because, you know, you guys were, they, they didn't know that you could beat the shit out of them and you have eye sh- shadow on and, you know, ties and stuff. And I feel like I actually saw you personally, like clock a dude for like talking shit to you about looking, <laughs> looking in a way that he didn't think was appropriate. And this guy came up and like asked you for an autograph and then you signed it and then he tore it up like in front of your face and you just like, rocked him and i was like that's so sick yeah that was uh free birds in jacksonville kill switch engage 36 crazy fists and yeah that that absolutely that absolutely happened and then 
yeah, his giant friend dumped an entire pitcher of beer on my head. And then, yeah, like all hell broke loose a few minutes later. Yeah. So, I mean, I was bullied. I was bullied in high school. So my freshman through junior year, I was bullied um, for like in my freshman year for like not wanting to smoke pot and like not wanting to like be a part of like that group that my friends were like pivoting towards. So I got bullied from them. Um, and then I got bullied for being straight edge for looking different, even though some of those bullies were friends with some of the older straight edge kids. It was just like, I was just like young, new, convenient kid to pick on. And so I think it was my junior year. I was at the bowling alley with some friends. Um, and you know, the, the guys that would bully me were there and they started, you know, kind of going after my friend and these guys were bigger. And from that point forward, I just was like, not really taking shit from anybody anymore. Let people like really uh, disrespect me or, you know, put me down or, or, or attack me in that way, you know? And yeah, I know that like when I was growing up, bullying was looked at a lot different than it is now, you know, not that it wasn't serious back then, because I, you know, I, I did take it seriously and it did, it did affect me and impact me, but you know, look at today's age and you know, how it affects people and, you know, some of the repercussions and, and some of the things that, that are a result of it, man. And it's just, so it's, it's serious. And I, I took what that guy was doing to me as like a big fat, like, fuck you. And you know, I'm going to, I'm going to disrespect you in front of my friends, in front of like people that are here to see you in front of your friends. And like, to me, that's like, maybe he was like not purposefully bullying me in the sense that I was in high school, but that's how I took it. And so I acted upon it. Yeah. Well, what's crazy that people may not realize now, because of course you're still in really great shape, but at this time, like in like 2000 to 2004, you're like jacked. Like I know people think that Chapetti's jacked and he is now, but back then you were bigger than he was. You were pretty muscular. So it's pretty crazy to step to you in that way, just on pure, you know, visual instinct. I know that you were dressed maybe differently, but you were still like a big guy. I don't know. It was very crazy to me at the time. Yeah. Um, it's funny. Uh, we would, when around that time we would train at 24 hour fitness and like there was a, a whole group of us that would go that we, we had uh, Mondays we called big chest day. Okay. And like back then, like literally we literally only train like chest back and arms. We didn't do legs. We didn't do abs. Like we weren't like we were, we were tra training chest like twice, three times a week. And we had a varsity bench and a junior varsity bench. And, um, Speaking of dudes that like got huge, like M shadows from Avenged, he was like, he was, he was on the JV bench when he first started out with us. And like, you know, he obviously, you know, graduated, but like, you know, we had a whole, like a whole group of friends. And like, that's all I did was I just ate a ton of food and I did, I, I, I worked out my chest and that was, <laughs> that was it. It was a little silly, but um, <laughs> yeah, that was that back then. Well, your bench must have been high as hell because I remember your traps were insane. So you must have just been like putting the bar to your eyeballs or something. Very sick. Love in Autumn has like a synthesizer on it. And it also seems like it refrains the song Vanity. You know, like it has like that same acoustic guitar part. I don't know if that's just me being prejudiced against acoustic guitar that I think every <laughs> part sounds the same or something. But um, was that something that you guys 
thought about adding like an extra layer onto the song. It seems like the song was already kind of you know fleshed out, but then it has these extra things that kind of build to to the end of it. Yeah, I think that was just like kind of like uh, an opportunity to start to explore a little bit more uh, with just different tones and different sounds. Um, you know, let some of like the musical influences from you know Keith kind of like really start to show through. That was like I feel like that one was like really his kind of thing. Um, he was always like the real ballad guy. I know Ken wrote gorgeous, but like in terms of like writing proper ballads, Keith was always that guy. He was, <clears throat> you know, really into the cure um, and Def Leppard. And I know like me, I can hear, you know, some of those tones and influences on just about every record from vanity on um, with Keith. So uh, it's always, I think 18 visions, um, you know, once vanity came around, it was always about exploring different ideas and different ways to make a song different or, you know, give it a certain vibe or, you know, just really kind of tap into something we might want to do in the future and, and see how it goes. You guys re-recorded the song Vanity and You Broke Like Glass when you reissued the album. What is it about the song Vanity that not only want, caused you to want to re-record it, but, you know, the it's the name of the album. What is it about that song? Or did the album title come first? You know, how does that really resonate with you that that song is like the one that you wanted to kind of reiterate on the second time around? When we talked about doing this, um, we had, you know, we'd been playing the song live once we got back together in 2017 to play, start playing shows again and vanity and you broke were on the set list. And, you know, we had, started to put like different spins on them. Right. And I feel like we started putting different spin on them even, you know, back in 2004, 2005, 2006, uh, just kind of freshening them up a little bit. You know, you play them for so long, so many different times that like, what, what kind of like little tweaks can we do here and there? And, you know, those are the, those are the two songs I felt like we, you know, made the most sense for us to explore at the time, uh, just because we had been playing them so often and, you know, our, our fans, I felt like really connected with those songs when we would play them live. Um, and then, you know, Keith doing like the producing side of it, just starting to get into that. Um, that was his first, I think that was his first, uh, his first go with actually doing something from start to finish. Um, and then, you know, later on he would do the Inferno EP and then the 1996 and then everything else we're working on now. He's been, you know, he's been like, yeah, the engineer, producer, mixer, you know, and I, I just try to give as much input as I can, you know, to help him with that stuff. Um, but yeah, those were the first two songs that he really felt like he wanted to explore. And I had talked about doing the whole record, but I think at the time um, it just maybe felt like a little bit of a too vast of an idea for him to, you know, kind of deal with at the time and like trying to get like what eight or nine songs recorded, um, you know, and, and, and ready for a release. So two made sense and they felt really, really good to do. Uh, I, I won't lie. I want more. I would love to like explore the whole album and see what that is like in, you know, 2022. Yeah. Just kind of piece it together every year record two or three more songs until eventually you got this, but you have to buy the separate records, you know, to kind of, put them together like a Voltron or a yeah. WWE figure. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, bands would do that back in the 90s. They'd put seven inches out and then, you know, those seven inches would then make a full length um, with like an extra song or two. Um, but I think, you know, something like that is is probably more uh, feasible now. Like what was, you know, maybe a daunting task two years ago is not so daunting anymore. And what does the title Vanity mean to you? And why was it the name of the record? It just was the song, the lyric, I want to see your vanity. You know, that song was, you know, about breakup, breakup, getting dumped. Somebody that I felt like looked at themselves a certain way, thought of themselves a certain way. And when going for, I think, like an album title, we kind of had the idea of like pink and like that was going to be the title track. And so like kind of like working around that, I I know the, I think the loose concepts were to like have like the, have it be like a, like a compact, like a a woman's compact that she would open and like, like kind of like a a reflection or a mirror type thing, magazine pages, you know, obviously didn't end up going that route. We really went for something like very, very clean and simple. Um, but yeah, I felt we, I think we all felt like vanity was a very, very like strong word. Um, it had like a lot of depth to it, uh, a lot of meaning. We knew that that was going to be the first song on the album, just the way that it starts with the, just the, the, the drum hit. And it, yeah, it felt like a really, really good uh, song and song to lead with and, you know, title for an album. Yeah, I think a one word title is always very powerful sounding, right? And it's definitely powerful visually when you just see the one word. Same with obsession. It's interesting you bring up the the beginning of vanity though, because I always thought it was interesting about you broke like glass because it starts off with that like chaotic double bass, you know, everything's kind of crashing and then it, <laughs> it like never really, you know, touches on that. Again, that's just the way it opens up. And I always thought that that was uh was crazy, but like in a good way. I was like, oh, these guys are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we just were always trying to do things different. I think that's what was fun about making music for us is doing stuff that like wasn't expected. The sly guitar, you think it's going to start to get nuts and it goes into this like rock part, right? Um, and I couldn't even tell you which part was written first. I'm going to imagine that the verse, the guitar verse was written first and the intro was just probably written to be the intro. It was like, hey, what can we do for the intro of this song? I know we've done that before, um, you know, written a, a beginning and an ending. Even in 2022, working on new music, we're still, you know, exploring different ways to, you know, be creative and push ourselves and not be so anticipatory for us. You know, as, as a listener, you don't quite know what you're going to get. And I think that's what's awesome for us musically. Yeah, a little more unpredictable. Greg Kohler is the producer of the album. It seems like he just does your core group of friends of Orange County bands. Uh, was there anything that he particularly contributed to the album that you think wouldn't have been there without him? You know, he really pushed me to get better takes. It was a different experience for us as a band in general. I think, you know, the earlier stuff we were doing down in Double Time in San Diego with the guy that did um, the Unbroken Records, And that was a lot more just like, you know, kind of like one take, like, let's get this in one take. You know, this was me trying to, I think, like, get the best takes possible. I wasn't like trying to like hammer out the whole song in one go. It was like, you know, a little bit more, 
you know, section by section. Let's, let's focus on getting this like as great as possible. And, you know, looking back, I, I think for me, what bums me out listening to that now is like, that that was like the best I could do back then. And like, I know, like I could have done better. I just didn't really know how, but I know that Greg got the most out of me that he could. You guys put out the covers album, 1996, even though the song 1996 is in fact not a Marilyn Manson cover like I thought it was going to be when I first put it on. Uh, how did you guys come up with the track listing for it? You know, a lot of Roadrunner bands are on there. You got Vision of Disorder, uh, Earth Crisis, Jerry Cantrell did a degradation trip on Roadrunner. But how did you guys pick what songs got to be on it? It's interesting. So we did like uh, we did a Nine Inch Nails cover a couple of years ago nothing really ever came of it. Uh, I think it was like used in the UK on some like metal hammer CD sampler. I don't even know if anybody knows about it. March of the pigs. I, so Keith just started recording metalcore songs at home. And he was just like, Hey, uh, you know, would you want to sing on like this VOD song or like this earth crisis song I'm working on? And I'm like, sure but like you know what are we going to do with it like are you just like doing it just for fun or like you know do you want something to come out of it you know i feel like you know if we're going to take time and like put into the production we should do something with it and he's like yeah totally cool um and i think he was working on like a, a, a allison chains cover he always wanted to do them bones and then i was like hey why don't we do like a 90s like influences like cover right um, you know, maybe a couple songs here and there. And then it just started to spiral into more and more. And as far as like picking songs, um, we wanted to go with songs that like influenced us as a band and as like writers individually. And like me and Keith always like really shared a lot of like similarities when it came to like musical taste and like songwriting. Um, Ken was always, um, you know, kind of half in on what we were doing but ken was always like a little bit more indie than like what like where we were at me and keith were like really heavily into like the 90s like rock and grunge scene and like heavily into like you know the sepultura vod stuff um you know that like early roadrunner shit that you're talking about um so you know picking these songs it was kind of like hey like let's do one from this band all right well what's what's a cool song like what could we, you know, especially with like the rock songs, like what could we explore and what could we do that's not like overly obvious, right? Like we didn't pick like the most popular Nirvana song to do, right? We didn't pick the most popular STP song to do. Um, what could we do that would be like, you know, really, really fun to explore that we could kind of like really put our own twist on. And like, that's what we wanted to do with like the rock side of things. When it came to like the metal hardcore stuff, we wanted to do stuff that like really, really meant a lot to us. The songs that like really meant a lot to us um, that when we, when we heard them or when they came out, uh, they were really important for us as like uh, individuals, maybe not even necessarily like musically, but like those songs like really um, held a lot of weight for us personally. And we wanted to approach those songs in a way where we could make them sound modern, but not really 
fuck with the original format and the original representation of the song. There's something that's like really, really pure about punk metal and hardcore that I feel shouldn't really be tampered with a whole lot coming from like the underground music world. I feel that there's just a little bit more that goes into writing songs. I really didn't want to fuck with that a whole lot. I didn't want to strip down anything that someone had done and like make it my own. Uh, I really just kind of wanted to do it justice and say, Hey, Unbroken, like you were one of the most important bands to 18 Visions and me and Keith growing up. And you're so important to us that we want to cover your song and we want to do you justice. And we're not going to tweak with, you know, the way that it was originally intended. We just kind of want to make it feel like it could belong in 2021. And so that was our approach with, with those songs. Yeah, I think that's a great point to make. You know, um, of course, it was a big thing, and it probably still is, to do like the uh, the punk goes pop, right? You take a a pop or a pop rock song that's already kind of primarily not live instruments, and you kind of make it a a heavier version of it. Whereas the songs that you guys covered are already heavy rock songs, right? So it's just kind of you putting your stamp on it. And I was really psyched to hear the STP uh, Down cover, just because Down when Down came out. In what, 99, 2000, I saw Stone Temple Pilots play like a radio rock show, uh, a radio festival, I should say. And they headlined. And uh, and I thought when they played that song, it was just the heaviest song I'd ever heard in my life. Like, I couldn't believe it. So getting to hear you guys do it, who are, you know, historically, in theory, a heavier band, right? Just really get to kind of, it almost is how I, the the 18 visions version of it is how i hear the stone temple pilots version you know like because if i play it for other people they're like yeah i don't know if this is really that heavy of a song man i'm like oh no you're not you're not hearing it right and you guys kind of brought that out so i appreciate you making it uh more obvious for for people for me it's such a heavy song man that like opening riff is i mean when that record came out it was just like everything you know they had done um the tiny music album before that which was like very, very different. It had like more of like a, more of like a retro feel to it, which was still like really, really cool. Um, But then this came out and you're like, okay, that has a core vibe to it, but like even way heavier. But yeah, you mentioned that you guys have been talking about this recently and just kind of things that you would have done differently. What is something that when you listen back to this that you would have done differently with, with Vanity now, kind of knowing what you know now? Just doing different vocal styles and vocal uh, performances because you kind of have that in your toolbox now? I mean, yeah, obviously, if I can go back and re-record that record 20 years ago, knowing what I know now, you know, I think... I think it would be a completely different record uh, vocally. Uh, there would be more space, you know, I think my execution would obviously be a lot better than it was back then. But again, that's the beauty of of progression and growth. Right. Um, And I think maybe like I look at me being the one that maybe held the band back from, you know, maybe reaching a different level or different height at that given moment, because listening back, I feel like I wasn't up to par with the rest of the guys. You know, I wasn't as good of a singer as Ken was, a drummer or a guitar player. I wasn't as good of a singer as, 
Keith was a guitar player. You know, I never looked at myself as the weak link, but, you know, looking like looking back in retrospect, I, I definitely like hearing the album from start to finish multiple times, especially recently. Um, you know, I kind of feel that way and, and definitely think, you know, the songs, it, you know, if I had my input, the songs wouldn't be five minutes long. I think we probably would have trimmed some fat here and there. But I think the one thing I would do even if like I couldn't bring my vocals back would just be like giving the music more space, letting like these really, really great guitar parts, like kind of breathe on their own and do their own thing without me stepping on them uh, with what I feel like was probably needless, needless vocals. I definitely don't think you were the weak link of the band. I don't think there was a weak link. I think this album is amazing and it stands the test of time. I can understand you feeling that way because you're also you're uh, in a, you got an embarrassment of riches with all the talent around you at the time. Like I said, I mean, you know, you got Keith and Brandon and and Ken, but also your your status as a front man, more than just a vocalist at that point, I think is a big part of what put 18 Visions as far as it did go. So, you know, definitely don't uh, think of yourself too lowly on the. I mean, especially at this time. I mean, you're like I said, you're you're jacked. You're knocking people out. You're looking cool. I mean, it's very important. So, don't uh, down yourself on that. But on the other end of it, what is your favorite thing about this album when you listen back to it? What's your something that you really think of fondly about it? Just how diverse it is. You know, vocally is when I really, really, really started to experiment. Um, there's even some like new metal parts on there. And I, I just, yeah, I really appreciate how, how diverse the record was, how how different it was from everything else at the time and how willing we were to experiment and try different things. We weren't, we weren't afraid, you know, I'll give us that for sure. Uh, we were definitely willing to do just about anything. Oh, you know, Hey, I've got this sick, like not nineties Nirvana riff. Awesome. Well, I've got this like Sepultura part. Cool. That sounds great. It sounds awesome together. Well, I've got this like overcast part, you know, or I've got this like corrosion of conformity part. <laughs> it's just like, all these different things just kind of like melting all together at all it, you know you know whether i say like you know there's fat that needed to be trimmed or i would trim fat or i would do things slightly differently it all worked out at the time you know and i think that's the beauty of it Thanks so much to James for reflecting back with me on one of my favorite albums. And you can definitely check out 18 Vision's most recent release, 1996, which is that covers album we were talking about. And maybe we'll see if they do something special to celebrate Vanity's 20th birthday. They grow up so fast, yet here we are, still so young and handsome. Thanks so much for checking out the show and for being a patron if you are listening to this on Patreon. Even if you're not listening to it on Patreon, first of all, how'd you get it? You got it on Napster? Secondly, I still appreciate you. Maybe just tell a friend about it, all right? Follow the show on Instagram at meetmeetpod. Leave a five-star review wherever they're receiving your stars. But either way, my name is Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Me. And yes, that's the best that I could come up with. Bye. <laughs>